If you would stand with me as we read from God's Word. Beginning in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then beginning in chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. Human dignity is a very important thing. We all know this. We know it as human beings. Our society is chock full of discussions of, well, is that really dignifying to a human being? What dignifies human beings? We see this especially in matters of justice, in matters of the poor. You will find people oftentimes, if you try to help them and you want to do something like this, I found this out several years ago when um, I was working down by the university and there was people down there who would not have a place to stay, and I would offer to go and, 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 and purchase them a hotel room and, uh, so that they would have a place to stay that evening. And they would say, no, I just want you to give me the money. And I would say, well, I really would prefer just to make sure you have a room. And they would say, well, you're not treating me with dignity because you won't give me the money. Now, you, you, you might chuckle a little bit, but what I want to say is there's, there's a part of that that what's really going on in a real sense is part of what dignity has is, tied to it, is a right estimation, a right evaluation of a circumstance, a right understanding, and with that is attached ability to do things and a call and a community in which to do that in and a place in which to do that in and a vocation in which to exercise that. And interestingly enough, what we've been looking at over the past few weeks, all those things are attached in the first two chapters of Genesis. Adam and Eve are called out. They're given a call. They're given a place. They're given a vocation. And they are given a community in which they are to live out in a dignified way life. Now attached to that, and very importantly attached to that, was not just those things, which oftentimes in our culture understand that when we talk about dignity, those things are usually where we stop. 
But we realize in Genesis something else is being said. We need a calling. We need a vocation. We need a place. And we need a community. We need those things. And those things are definitely all wrapped up into what makes us human and what gives us dignity in life. But without the Creator, without the relationship with God, the Maker of His people, all of that other stuff falls flat. What I hope we will look at today and what I want us to start to consider in these passages is that dignity is related to what we esteem, to what we delight in. And when what we delight in becomes one of those things like community, like vocation, like a call, like a place, when those things begin to take pride of place, dignity goes right out the window. Because one might consider this, if one is proud of one's place, one's heritage, one's nationality, we know that apart from God, what that leads to, it leads to genocide. It leads to war between peoples. We know that when pride of community becomes so important that what often can happen is individuality is squashed right out. Because the community is not really about being communing together. It's more about what is it we have in common, and that's all we talk about. That's all we promote. That's all we do. So our homes all look a certain way, and if you deviate from that, you're immediately sent a letter telling you and letting you know you've deviated. Get back in line. You see, what I want you to begin to understand is without the Savior of, your, of God's people, without the Creator of God's people being our source of delight, dignity is lost. In fact, dignity is impossible. So I want to look at that in this passage, and I think that what we see being played out in front of us in these, in these passages we just read, this unfolding of, of history, we have insights into how that, that is, is living in our lives and how we can think about that and how we might find hope in the midst of discouraging circumstances. The first thing I want us to look at then is those passages that we read first back in chapter 2. And I want you to think about these in light of three things sort of in this point. The command, the covenant, the relationship. Because all those three things are what is happening in that first point. Command is the one you can write down, but it's a covenant, it's a relationship. All those things are in play when we talk about the command. Okay, here's the first thing I want you to notice that, that God does for the man. I read verse 15 because I think it shows us what God does for him. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden at a place. And he put him there to do what? To work it and keep it. Calling and vocation. And we know what we looked at last week is, is that he, right after he gives this command, he says it's not good for him to be alone, so he grants him community. He brings him into community with others. And so what we see is, is that God basically gives man dignity right from the beginning. He says, here's what makes man dignified. He is made in my image, and these are the things he does. And these are the ways he operates. And because of that, we know that when we do a good job, trust me, when you come here on October 20th to sweat and labor 
in the yard of the church, in the garden of this church, rocks and trees and other such things. There's a sense of when you get done at the end of the day and have done a hard day's work, you feel good. That's not just a Christian thing. Most human beings, when they really have worked hard and they see the fruit of their labor, feel good about it. it it's, it's job accomplished. See, what I want you to understand is that it's not wrong when people say, well, that gives people dignity. They're right. It does. And so we shouldn't deny that. I want us to understand that God put within us a sense of work, a sense of community. When we see people coming together for a common purpose and seeing that thing accomplished, we feel good about it. It makes us, we feel like things are somehow right with the world in some interesting ways. So what I want you to see here in this passage is, is that God is saying, Adam is a dignified creature. He gives him dignity, gives him place and purpose and reason for being. And when we're doing those things in any capacity, whether believer or unbeliever, it shouldn't be shocking that we feel somehow better. We feel like I'm worth something in some certain ways. Problem is, is that that leads us into a dilemma as well. The second thing I want you to notice about this command, though, and I think it's incredibly important that we see this, Look at what verse 16 says. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely, and I actually don't like that translation of the ESV the best. I, I can't remember what translation it is. Maybe the NIV, bless their hearts. But it, I like the translation where it says, Of all the trees of the Garden of Eden, you may eat freely. And I think that's important because I think that's what's lying behind this. Of all the trees in the garden, you may eat freely. And I want you to hear it like that because I think that's exactly how God's saying it to the man. So the second thing I want you to notice from the command is, is that what Adam's actually commanded to do is to delight in God. It's not something he ought to do as a result of what he's commanded to do. He's commanded to delight. Of all the trees, look at this whole garden I've given to you. And all these trees of every variety, you may run free. The psalmist says, you have set my feet in wide places. I want you to understand that God's goodness is on display. His, the freedom that we have as His creatures in the garden. We're going to miss the whole point of the fall if you don't see that. They were commanded to eat freely. To delight. To rejoice in all the goodness that God had for them. And so we see that that's not just some peripheral issue. Delighting in God is central. It's an imperative. The second thing that I want you to notice that comes here and is tied to dignity is also denial. And look at what God then says. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. A friend of mine would say, what you have here in the covenant of life or the covenant of works is freedom and fences. What God does is he says, here's your freedom and here's the fence. Stay in the fence. Run freely. Augustine said it. Love God. Do as you please. See, there's the fence. Love God. Do as you please. There's the freedom. But notice that what's happening here and notice what's going on in the covenant of works is Adam is told, I command you to delight 
and I also command you to deny. I give you freely of everything in this garden except for this one thing. This one thing. And of this one thing, you must deny yourself and come after me. You hear what he's saying? Deny yourself this and come after me. The last thing we see in this command or the covenant is, is death. It is the consequence. Because he says, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. You will surely die. So, we see the reality that God gives dignity. He calls man to delight in him. He calls man to deny himself in a very small thing. But that very small thing what looms large in this story. And so as we come then to the second point, I want us then to look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, and begin to look at the deception. Now, one of the things I started looking at and thinking about in this, in some ways, was um, Psalm chapter 1. And you know how it talks about how blessed is the man who does not sit in the seat of scoffers, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor walk in the counsel of wicked, or walk, walk in the way of sinners, or um, I'm misquoting it right now, and I'm not even going to try and go there. It talks about not, not basically being in the counsel of the wicked, and so we're not to do that. We're not to be in that, in that lifestyle. And so I really want to kind of use those three things um, as ways of, of thinking through what happens with Eve. The first thing I want you to look at, and look how the serpent does this, he basically says, Now the serpent was crafty, more crafty, than the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now what I want you to notice is, is that what the serpent is really after with Eve is to get her to doubt her need. That's really what she's after. I want you to doubt your need of God. He's not trying to make her do anything, not trying to deny God, not trying to do any of those type of things. What he wants her to do is just realize, just begin to lay out this question mark of, do you really need God? Now, I want you to think about this in our modern context because many of us who have either work in jobs, which many of us do, or are in school especially in college, I want you to think about how this gets said to you. When you say something about Jesus or believing in God or you read your Bible or any of those kind of things, how many of you have ever had this? And you can actually raise your hand. It's not rhetorical. How many of you have ever had someone go, oh? Have you ever had that happen? Oh. Or you get this kind of comment. Well, isn't that good for you? How nice for you? Now see, really what's, what's going on there is, is, that, is that what people are really doing is this subtle sense of making you doubt your need. See, because in some sense, partly what's being said is, oh, oh, you, you need God. Oh, you're one of those people who need God. It, it's what one of my relatives always says, well, you know, there are some people who need a crutch, and, you know, God's yours. And I go... Praise the Lord, I need two crutches. And thank goodness I have Jesus and the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's kind of my, my, my rhetorical response to that. Um, but the point I want you to see is, is that what Satan's really after here is to get Eve to doubt her need. 
you don't really need God, do you? Did God really, did he really say that? Really? Oh, well, good for you. Wasn't that nice for you? So I think it's really important that we begin to see that because it's kind of the spirit of, of the scoffer, the s- spirit of sophistication. You know, sophisticated people don't need trivial things like that. I mean, that's so trivial. It's so small. It's so... Well, didn't you go to college? I mean, didn't you, didn't you get an education is almost the question you're being asked. Did, didn't, you, didn't your mama teach you better than that? The second thing I want us to look at is listening to the counsel of the wicked. And look at what happens then. He basically draws her to a place where she, she kind of wants to sit her in the seat of a scoffer of, well, did God say that? And the interesting thing is, is that Eve's already kind of set up. That here's the problem for Eve. Eve's response betrays the fact that before the quote-unquote fall, she was already falling. Because look at what she says here. She says... God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Now, he didn't say not to eat of the tree in the midst of the garden because there's actually two trees in the midst of the garden. There's a tree of life. There's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He told her not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it seems to me that distinction is pretty imperative, pretty critical. So she doesn't make a distinction, which is problematic. But the real problem is what she says right before that. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. And why am I saying that she's listening to the, to the counsel of the wicked? Because what the wicked always want to counsel you is this. God is not really good. Or he's not as good as you think he is. I mean, you know, all of us probably, well, maybe not all of us, but many of us have probably tapped our foot a time or two to Billy Joel's Only the Good Die Young. I mean, it's, it's just a nice, catchy tune. The lyrics are horrific in some sense. I mean, you know, I mean, he's basically trying to woo a girl into giving up her virginity. I mean, that's the whole point of that song. And, and his way of doing it is saying, you know, maybe the sisters didn't, and he's talking to a girl at, at a parochial school, maybe the sisters didn't give you quite enough information. You know, God's really not that good. In fact, only the good die young. So if that's what you really want, if that's what you're really after, but let me tell you something, there's something better. And and you're hung up with all this stuff about God's goodness. And see, Eve's already sort of there because see, her response to him getting her to, to become a scoffer is to say, well, God has said of all the trees and of the fruit of the trees in the garden we can eat, That's not what he said. He said of all the trees in the garden, you can go and grab hold of and freely bite into it. And if that one was sort of good, you can grab this one and go, yeah. And you can hold on to that one and grab this one over here and go, yes. Let me come right over here and grab this one and go, yeah. And hang on, let me set these down because I've got 5,000 other trees in this garden I hadn't even begun to get hold of. And maybe if we start to use our minds together and we start to cross-blend some of these trees together, we can even get more varieties of fruit to eat freely. And more varieties of animals to be husbands over. And, 
and children. And you, you see the freedom. And well, it's of all the fruit of the trees in the garden, we can eat. You see how she minimizes God's goodness? She, she shrinks it. She makes it just, well, yeah, I mean, you know, we, we, we get some good stuff. It's not that bad. I mean, it's, it's not, God's not really being oppressive. Not really. But do you see how the whole frame of the conversation has changed? And here's the interesting thing that happens. She then starts to doubt God's word. And then she doubts God's declaration. Because see, doubting God's word was not to quote it verbatim. It was not to say, this is emphatically what it says. Now, I'm not saying that you've got to be able to quote every single verse you ever quote exactly as it's written. But I am saying that theologically, you need to be on the right track. Context. You need to understand what it's really saying and not what you think it says or how it says. So the point is, is that Eve's not getting the point. It's not just a matter of misquoting it or just leaving out a few words. She misses the whole point, and we see it because when you get down to what she says to him about the consequence, look at how she responds. She adds a, a requirement which God didn't add, which always happens when we start to minimize God's goodness. We start adding requirements. We're not supposed to touch it. God never said anything about not touching it. Me, go over there and spin it around in your finger. You can walk around it and play tennis with it. You can do all kinds of stuff with it. You just can't eat it. I mean, if fruit does what it naturally does and it falls down and they're supposed to be keepers of the garden, what do you do with fruit when it falls down? You pick it up. Why? What's it do? It rots. And please, people, let's, let's, let's be thoughtful here. Let's not think that... I mean, think about this. If the fruit didn't rot and naturally go back into the soil like it's supposed to, how big a pile of fruit would there be sitting around all these... Tr- I mean, let's be for real here. It rotted. It, it went away. So you had to pick it up. You, had, you know, they had, they had their little compost pile out there on the, on the outskirts of the Garden of Eden, and they added to it. And so what we see here then is that she doubts it. So then she doubts his clear declaration. What was his clear declaration? In the day that you eat of it, you will most assuredly, emphatically die. And she says, in the day that we eat of it, we'll die. But that's not what God said. He said, in the day you eat of it, you will, the Hebrew word is actually a double it's doubling it. Die, die. You may eat, eat, and if you eat of that, but if you eat of that fruit, you will die, die. Most surely will you perish. She minimizes it. And notice what, he, what Satan jumps on when she minimizes it. Notice what the serpent jumps on. He quotes emphatically what God says. He openly, flat, he knows he's got her. You will not surely die. He's got her. He's hooked her. And what I want you to think about is this in our own culture, in our day of living. What do we see in people who disregard God's boundaries? What we see in our culture around us and what we struggle with in our own hearts is is pretty much two different aspects of life. One of them is we become control freaks and every person in this room is a control freak about something. Trust me. If you doubt it, just let me come hang out with you a couple of days, and I assure you that I will show you. You're controlling that. Why are you? And if you went and hung out, and if you hung out with me for those two days, you go, yeah, oh yeah, brother. Well, look at your controlling. 
We, when we doubt God's goodness, we begin to be people who want to control the situation, control the circumstances, control the parameters. Why? Because we're afraid. We're operating in the what-ifs have overtaken us. The second thing that happens to us is not just that we are controllers. The other side of it is we disregard the boundaries. We disregard the fences. We disregard the declaration, you will surely die. And we run whole hog into all kinds of foolish, sinful, wicked things. And folks, this is true for every single one of us in this room. There are things that you do not deal with, that you give way to sin. You let it inhabit your world and you do nothing about it because, quite frankly, you're over here controlling this. That's not really important. Or you just have people that are just openly intellectually honest and they just say, I'm just going to run amok in it because who cares about control? You know, they become intellectually honest and say, I can't control anything. So why try? And what they mean by control is why be responsible? Why care? Why should it even matter? Eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. That becomes their motto. But do you understand that that ultimately starts with denying God's goodness? And that leads us to the third point that I want us to look at underneath the deception. Walking in the sinner's way. What I want you to see of walking the sinner's way is look at, look at what it says here. As we move down, it says that Eve, as she listened to his counsel, said, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, so it made good sense to eat it. I mean, you know, so what if we got all these other gazillions of trees to eat from? I mean, this one's good for food, too. In fact, it may have some vitamin nutrition that we're missing out on from these other trees. I mean, who knows what kind of benefits? I mean, it might help with my skin tone and all the things one might benefit from eating this fruit. It's good for food. And that it was a delight to the eyes. It was aesthetically pleasing. You know, this whole garden. I mean, what I'm trying to get you to realize is this is exactly how we deal with sin ourselves. But don't you understand that there's, there's good in this? I mean, what's wrong with doing this? I mean, whatever that thing may be. And, and it's, it's really beautiful. I mean, look at that. Isn't that, isn't, that, isn't that pretty? Isn't that nice? I mean, what's wrong with that? See, see, I'll put it to you like this. I want you to think about this, and I'll, I'll, I'll rub us in some ways up close and personal. Because some of this is going on in our own city, and I'm not, I don't, I'm not telling you I have all the answers, but I'm saying it ought to in some ways matter to us a little bit. But I'll use the city of Chicago to make the point. When I was in, at Trinity Divinity School in the city of Chicago, um, I, w- I had friends that worked in the inner city and churches down there. And what was happening there was that a lot of this new development was coming into the city. And, of course, let's think about it. What, what, what could possibly be wrong with that? you got all these slums. you got all these crack houses. you got all these problem places. And you got a lot of wealthy investors that are going to come in and build up all these new homes. And it's going to really be really awesome. And it's going to bring all these dead neighborhoods back to life. And we're going to have businesses coming back down here. And we're going to save Wrigley. And I mean, just think about all the things that people, I mean, and really more importantly, that we're going to save Kaminsky. I mean, that's really important there. I mean, White Sox. So they start to build all these things down there. But what happens to the people that live there already? 
who weren't necessarily crack addicts, and the crack addicts themselves, and the crack dealers themselves. Well, they just got moved to another part of the city. So the poor and the disenfranchised and the hurting were displaced so the wealthy and the affluent could come down and live in a really cool place with a lot of cool aesthetics and a lot of cool restaurants to eat. And, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with beautiful homes. and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with good eats. And there are some incredible eats in the city of Chicago. There are here in the city of Tucson, too. But do you understand that that's not really progress? It's just displacement. It's not really caring about people. It's just basically doing what seems good for a certain group of people that seems right and proper at the time. And who's going to argue with that? I mean, what kind of fool are you? Land property goes up. Well, what, are you not for, for property values going up? Or are you one of those commies? You, you see how, you see the justification for not caring about the fact that, well, what are you going to do with these people? What are you, a socialist? Are you a Marxist? What you, what you major in in college, boy? I had friends of mine that were asked those kinds of questions when they raised issues about it and said, is this really what's in the best interest of this community and for these people? And is this really the way we should go about it? And that's an up close and personal one, but I want to come back then to walking in the sinner's way and look at what says here as she goes on and says, and the trees was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. Now here's what I think walking in the sinner's way is. It's basically if you get that whole understanding of the goodness of God, you see that what happens to us is we become controllers and we become disregarders. Okay? Then what does that develop into? It develops into self-righteousness and unrighteousness. That's what it grows into. And here's the problem of walking in the sinner's way. Walking in the sinner's way is in some sense either thinking somehow that your rightness depends on you or that your walk doesn't matter. See, that's the difference between the self-righteous and, and, and the unrighteous. Your walk doesn't matter, or your walk is everything. And notice the interesting thing is these two groups of people hate one another, and yet they're guilty of the same thing. They won't come to the one who could heal them. And see, that's what's walking in the sinner's way. is. It's, it's a determined way of walking that will not come to the only one that can do anything about your dilemma. You either think you're going to do it yourself or you don't care anymore. You're just cynical. And what difference does it make? Basically, it could be summarized like this. One group says, I'll get back on my own. The other says, I'll get what I can get while I can get it. Now then, we start to look at the consequences of, of that deception. That's our third point is the consequences. And we know what happened there. It says the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Notice what happens to the man and the woman. Remember, we, we end chapter 2. And the man and the woman 
were naked and they were unashamed. And by the time we get to verse 7 and 8, the man's and his wife's eyes are opened. They realize they're naked and they run and hide. Guilt and shame now begins to define their relationship. And I want you to think about this. The things that have been made for their calling, for their place, for their vocation, for their community has now become a place of hiding. The creation is no longer a place of worship and delight, but it is a place to hide from the Creator. Maybe He can't see through this part of the forest. And the Creator is now no longer the source of delight and the cause of all rejoicing. The choir director has been silenced. Adam has been quieted. And instead of being the dignified Lord of all creation under God, he now becomes a cowering sissy in the trees. That's what he is. And the Creator is not one to be delighted and rejoiced in, but one to be very, very afraid of. Not reverent fear, not a rejoicing reverence, but one to be deathly afraid of. Adam and Eve's dignity is gone, and they are alienated from the source of dignity. And that's where we end at verse 8. That's where you end. You just hit this rock bottom place of here's where humanity is. And when you look out at the city of Tucson, and when you look into the barrios of South Tucson, and when you look into other places around this globe, you go out to rural areas where no one's even willing to go out and minister to anyone because there's no money and, and quite frankly, people are so spread out and all these difficulties and you just continue to, the, the weight of disenfranchisement and the realities of guilt and the realities of shame, the realities of distance from God. This is it. Here's its source. Here's its fountain. And I could say... Amen. Good luck. Thank goodness that's not all that the Scriptures leave us with. And I want us to conclude by looking at verse 9. Look at what happens there. And the Lord God called the man and said to him, Where are you? And you may think that that's the worst sentence, the worst question that could ever be asked. But I want, before we leave today, for you to see that as a great testimony of hope. Because see, God does not come and use language that says, like lots of times we do, if we're really ticked at our kids, or really ticked at our dogs, come here! What are you doing cowering over there in the corner? Get over here now! Most of the dads in here are smiling because you all know no matter how no matter how really sweet you are and no matter how much you want to put on a, a kissy face to all the rest of us, we all know that your kids can bring you to the place where you go, come here, now. And 
And there they are. <laughs> Lions and tigers and papas, oh my. And that's where they are. But notice that's not how God operates. He doesn't use the language of demand and command. He uses the language of love and wooing. Where are you? Now, he knows good and well where he is. I mean, we're talking about a God who knows everything and sees everything and is everywhere. I mean, God is somehow in his presence is right next to Adam hiding in the trees. But do you see the love that the father has because he comes and says, where are you? And shaking and fearfully, we know as we look at this next week that the man is going to come out. But I want you to get enraptured by the kind of God that Adam and Eve were dealing with. That despite them, he was true to his character of being good and faithful and loving. And so he says, where are you? The other thing I want you to notice about this is that before God ever stepped into that garden, he knew that stepping into that garden in that way was going to cost him. You see, by asking that question, he basically already is showing you that he knows it's going to cost him. Why? Because in the day that you eat of it, you must surely die. So he's either got to kill Adam or he's got to kill somebody in his place. So you understand that when God stepped into that garden and asked, where are you? He had already determined to do something on behalf of these fallen creatures. Now, all of this experience that God steps into in the Garden of Eden, He looks forward to in a garden down the road. And there will be a garden. And there was a garden where a son of God, a second Adam, laid on the ground and openly declared, Father, I need you. Father, I feel alone. Father, could you let this cup pass? See, Jesus laying in that garden openly confesses, I need my Father in a way that Adam and Eve were not willing to express themselves because remember, they're hiding. They won't come. And he openly declares his belief in God's goodness by saying this, not my will be done, but thy will be done. And see, you may not get that on the front end, but you cannot go to Gethsemane and understand the only way you can come to a place and say, not my will, but thy will be done, is to be openly and unabashedly believing that whatever happens, it can be nothing but good. See, Aslan's not safe, but we know he's good. And the third thing that we see there is, is that that son, by saying, not thy will, but my will be done, would go eat of a tree himself. He would go taste of that tree's fruit. And that tree's fruit was the curse. 
that tree's fruit that he would taste was death and abandonment, naked and ashamed on the cross. And why? So that people like us could do just like the psalmist said, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, if you're a person in this room today and you've never tasted of that, today's the day. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of hope. And maybe you're someone who this week has beat you down. Today is the day to remember, to be reminded, to reflect. And maybe you've had a great week. Well, today is the day of rejoicing and remembering that even if this next week's not that great, the same God that gave you this good week is going to be right there in the midst of that bad week. He cannot and He will not change. May God help us to believe that in our hearts. Amen.